So I'm sitting at home in my office uh, flipping through the papers the other morning, and I, I come across this headline. Most B.C. residents believe in God, but few attend church regularly. Survey. And I note the article is written by my old friend Mario Canseco. So, aha, I say to myself, there's a poll going on. And sure enough, he's conducted a poll. Uh, he and his company, research company, have conducted a poll. And, and, and the findings begin with this sentence. Throughout the course of this century, British Columbia has been the most irreligious province in Canada. Here to talk about his findings and the poll itself, research company CEO, Mario Canseco. Good morning, Mario. Happy Easter. Good morning, Sterling. Happy Easter. It's great to talk to you. It's good to have you back on the show, Mario. Tell us about this poll and why you did it. Well, I thought it was a good opportunity to look at the way we feel about uh, stuff related to spirituality because Easter was coming up. And, and what I see here is a situation that is quite fascinating. There's a definitely a large number of BC residents who believe in God, but mm -hmm. there's very few of them who are at going to religious services, and there's even fewer who are relying on religious figures for advice or for confession. So I wouldn't say it's a situation, as REM put it in 1991, that we're losing our religion. We're losing our organized religion. That is what is happening. Ah, so, so we'll talk about that. First of all, uh, let's talk about the poll, because you said Easter Sunday is coming up. So clearly this is done in recent weeks. How recently have you done the research? Uh, we conducted it earlier this month, from okay. April 4th to April 7th. All right. Uh, and it's, it's an interesting scenario because, you know, the one thing that really strikes me is how many residents say that, that they are convinced that God exists, uh, which is 39%, so two out of five. There's 22% who tend to believe that God exists. So that takes us to 61% or, or essentially three out of five residents who say that they believe or tend to believe in God. Uh, but there's... 67% of BC residents who never attend religious services unless it's a wedding, a baptism, or a funeral. Sure. So there's a disconnect between how we feel about God's existence and what we actually do uh, when it comes time to uh, go to a specific religious service. Interesting. Now, Mario, did this transcend any particular or all religious sects? Uh, you talked about the believing, the people of British Columbia believing that God exists, and that would be God as they see it, whether it's Allah or Jesus or whatever. Uh, uh, you, you, were, uh, you rose above religious organizations in the poll, Yes. Yes, definitely. It's it's quite complex to look at this from the standpoint of specific um, religions. Uh, what uh, happens many times is you, you end up in a situation where the sample sizes for specific religions tend to be quite small, and then your observations on the data can be meaningless. Right. Okay. So um, is there? did you notice, though, uh, back to religious organizations, do people who are of uh, different faiths have different degrees or levels of participation? Are Christians, for example, less church-going than Muslims? Those kinds of distinctions. Well, we, we, we found a lot of uh, residents who who said they were Christians, uh, who essentially only attend if it's Christmas, if it's Easter, if it's a specific holiday. Right. Uh, it, it was quite interesting to, to see it, because we, we what I see here in a way, and this is something that really came across in some of the commentary from the Catholic respondents, was that they, they don't have a problem with believing in God or, or following specific tenets. 
they're having a problem with the way the church has been organized. And right. I think there's a, a lot of situations over the past 20 years, for instance, that, that have made them a little bit uneasy about organized religion. So it's, it's a difficult situation, uh, especially when you compare it to how the situation used to be 30, 40 years ago, where you continue to see a lot of people who were attending religious services all across Canada, right. and here in BC also, um, and now it's more a situation of, well, this is how I feel about it, this is how I want to deal with my faith or my spirituality, and I don't have to be there every Sunday at noon. Interesting. So we, we possess, as a, as a group, British Columbians, a fairly high degree of spirituality, Mario, but that doesn't necessarily translate into participation in a specific religious activity. And that is exactly what is happening. You know, when we ask people about specific things that they've done over the past 12 months, 27% say that they have meditated, and 24% say that they have prayed to God. So okay. there's definitely a sense of trying to look for that moment when you're going to be finding some inner peace, when you want to find calm, when you want to uh, think about specific issues that you want to deal with. And there's more people, albeit uh, not that many more, who are meditating instead of uh, praying. But to me, the one thing that was quite eye-catching is uh, there's very few who actually sought advice from a religious figure, only 2% of BC residents. There's more people who, if they're facing difficulties in their lives, if they have a problem, if they want to plan ahead, they're talking to mental health uh, a, a, a professionals such as a, a psychiatrist maybe. And there's also those who are uh, talking to life coaches. So this is a, a fascinating change for me because 40, 50 years ago, the religious figure was the most important person, the priest, the pastor. That was the person you went to when you had a situation at home or at your workplace. It's not happening anymore. Interesting stuff. Now, uh, back to the, the reasons that we British Columbians have fallen off, disconnected, if you will, Mario, from uh, participatory religious activities. Uh, in the case of the Catholics, for example, they've had a rough uh, 20 years in terms of scandals within the church that have frankly turned off an awful lot of people who just said, I want nothing more to do with this outfit until they get their house in order. And it doesn't appear that they're in any hurry. Uh, have other religions also experienced similar crises within that have caused other followers to step back, as has been the case with some Catholics? It hasn't been as as, uh, as uh, harsh as, as what we see from the Catholics, for instance. Uh, I mean, there's been other controversies, particularly related to the way in which you are going to be dealing with uh, the LGBTQ community. Uh, I, we saw a little bit of that with the Anglicans. We saw a little bit of that in, in, in some other ju jurisdictions. Uh, but I think the the main issue is, especially when you're looking at the findings on the national level and, and you look at the way people are um, saying uh, what is their own religion, uh, we, we see a little bit of a drop here in BC. And I think we have become the most irreligious province, at least if you look at the Statistics Canada numbers. Uh, we went from 35% no religion British Columbians in 2001 census to 44% 10 years later. So we'll have to wait and see what happens in the in the census that is going to be taking place in 2021. But uh, after BC, the biggest drop is in Quebec. You know, we, we saw a situation there where a lot of people were Catholics 40, 50 years ago, right. and it's now starting to uh, become a situation where they describe themselves as baptized, <laughs> but they're not actually going to church. So those are the two areas that are 
contributing to the drop in church attendance when it comes to Catholics. I'm not too surprised by that in terms of Quebec, given the fact that the majority of the population, at least nominally, are Catholics. Yes. Interesting. And it's, it's that. It's, it, it's a nominal issue. And, and one of the things that is happening uh, worldwide is uh, there's more of an introduction um, of uh, Catholicism in other places. And, and there's also evangelicals who have really made a lot of uh, strides, particularly in areas in, in, in South America. So there's a little bit of that competition um, to get uh, essentially people on the church pews um, in, in South America and in Latin America, certainly more than what we see right now in Canada or in the United States. I suppose, you know, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to receive information from Sri Lanka this morning, Mario, and oh, yeah. none of it, absolutely none of it is good. Uh, there have been some terrorist attacks on Christian Easter services, and over 200 people have been killed. We don't even know how many others have been wounded. The information is spotty right now, but we're gathering it as we go along. And again, so perhaps in a country like Canada where we get the freedom to to take religion for granted, uh, our attitudes are much different than in other parts of the world where going to church is actually a political statement. Absolutely. I mean, we are definitely blessed to be in a situation where we can discuss uh, issues related to religion um, without having to face any sort of violence or any retribution from, from others. Uh, it's, a, it's a complex matter, particularly when, when you're assessing the situation in Sri Lanka right now. I mean, it's, you're right, it's, it's still spotty. We need to get some more in, information yes. about what is happening and, and, and who's responsible for this. But uh, there's, there's definitely a lot to be thankful for on this Easter Sunday when we're sitting here in Canada talking about religion without having to face any threats. Absolutely. Where can we find this online if we want to dive into your numbers, Mario? Uh, the survey is on our website at researchco.ca. Uh, you can look at the data tables for all of the demographics and, and some interesting breakdowns as well when it comes to uh, regions. Uh, Southern BC, the Okanagan, more likely to be at church today than anywhere else in the province. Interesting stuff. Mario Canseco, always a pleasure, sir. We appreciate your taking some time out of your busy Sunday morning to be with us on the radio. Uh, very interesting, provocative stuff. Thanks, Mario. Anytime, Sterling. Great to talk to you again. And it's time to check in with Mike Smith, Vancouver Province columnist and, of course, CKNW host. Mike, good morning. Happy Easter. Happy Easter to you too, Sterling. You wrote a piece the other day after the election next door in Alberta about Premier Horgan, who suddenly is all by himself between uh, Victoria and Quebec City. There are now nothing but conservative jurisdictions. Yeah, you think about that kind of a, a blue wave of conservatives that has rolled across a big swath of the country here now. You got... Of course, Jason Kenney right next door in Alberta. Um, then you've got, of course, Doug Ford in Ontario, Scott Moe in Saskatchewan. There are right-leaning governments in Manitoba, mm -hmm. Quebec. Horgan is now the last NDP premier standing. He's the only one left. And I guess that's going to make it potentially a little tricky for him at first minister's conferences when sometimes premiers like to get together to have a solid block to go up against the federal government. Right. So that makes it a little a little tricky for him. But I guess the more immediate jeopardy for him is how is he going to deal with this guy, Kenny, next door, who's threatening to 
turn off the taps on oil and gas shipments to BC. This is going to be interesting. Well, it is going to be interesting. First of all, you've been in the in the game for a while. You've been watching from a very a good vantage point for years. What do you think the possibility of Jason Kenney, that the, the, the law exists, it hasn't been proclaimed, which is why right. the British Columbia court case against it failed because the judge said, uh, this is all theoretical. It's not, it's, it's a bill, but it's not proclaimed into law. Uh, come back when it is basically. Yeah, that's correct. And what, what uh, Jason Kenney has promised to do is that he will, proclaim that turn-off-the-taps legislation right. into law in Alberta at the first opportunity. So that would pr- conceivably be his first cabinet meeting on the day that he's sworn in. Mm-hmm. Now, I believe him when he says he's going to do that. He says he's going to proclaim the bill. But proclaiming it is one thing, and actually using it is is another. Right. And he, the, con- the threat to use this against British Columbia and actually to shut off oil and gas shipments to B.C., if you take a look at the specific wording that he's used here, it's actually a conditional threat. He said he, he'll do this if, stress if, British Columbia continues to obstruct the Kinder Morgan pipeline or the Trans Mountain pipeline. So, you know, we'll see if he has the guts or the ability to do this. And another thing to watch for is as soon as the bill is proclaimed into law, the B.C. government will probably immediately go to court and, and try to stop it and fight it in the courts in Alberta. So the B.C. government has already got its lawyers lined up here yeah. to argue that he can't do this. It's unconstitutional. It's illegal. Of course, Alberta says, sure, we can. It'll probably all be settled by the courts. Interesting stuff. And, of course, they do point to uh, the duality of uh, British Columbia's position on the pipeline because uh, we're uh, the – provincial position, the Green NDP coalition is decidedly against it, uh, willing to do almost anything to obstruct it. Yet, at the same time, at least the NDP part of the coalition is all gung-ho on LNG. Yeah, and and Alberta and and Jason Kenney have pointed that out frequently, saying that, you know, Horgan and the NDP government here in BC, look, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. They want to stop our oil shipments to the coast, but they're going crazy on LNG development in BC on some another form of fossil fuel. So they're hypocrites, but we'll see how this all washes out in court. Like right now, the BC government is at the BC Court of Appeal waiting for a judgment there where they have put in a reference case and asked whether British Columbia has the authority to stop or limit Alberta's bitumen shipments through that pipeline in order to protect our marine coast from an oil spill. And that decision from the uh, Court of Appeal is imminent. It should be very soon. And there's a good chance that that court might turn back and come back and say, no, British Columbia does not have this authority to stop what goes in that pipeline. And if that's what happens, and a lot of people think it might, Horgan at at that point might just throw his hands up and say, well... I've done everything I could to try and stop this pipeline. Right. We played it. We played every card in our hand. We, and we've done everything I could, and, and we can't stop it. And that's the end of it. And then Kenny might turn around and say, "Well, okay, that's fine with us. We're not going to shut off the oil and gas shipments. Then, let's get going with this pipeline and put it in the ground." That could be the way that this whole thing unfolds, and everybody set, and everybody saves face. 
Yeah, and, and that's kind of important all around, especially uh, with the uh, fragility of the of the current British Columbia government. Yes, it's it's a coalition of sorts, but, you know, it could unravel pretty quickly. Uh, and, and I wanted to just press the point a little bit further uh, in, in terms of the popularity of the pipeline, because this is another reality Horgan is having to adjust to, as the mood of the citizens of British Columbia appears, Mike, to be shifting somewhat towards favoring the completion of the pipeline. Yeah, I mean, if you take a look at a lot of the opinion polls, they've been consistently showing that the majority of British Columbians actually support the pipeline development. Now, there is a kind of an urban-rural split on that. If you take a look at where some of the opposition to the pipeline is, it's largely urban, especially on the sort of ground zero in Burnaby, where there's a lot of local opposition, where the terminal of the pipeline would be mm-hmm. would be set up. So, you know, but in the in the bigger regions of the province, sort of outside of Metro Vancouver, there does tend to be more support for the pipeline going forward. You know, this fight between Kenny and Horgan is going to be interesting to watch, but I think one of the, the bigger threats and more realistic threats to this pipeline is environmental protest on the ground. So people who have said, you know, hell no, this pipeline's not going to go in the ground. I'm going to lie down in front of bulldozers and we could see civil disobedience. Or you could see First Nations continuing to fight it in court. They've been unsuccessful so far, but there's always an opportunity for them to go back in court and try and stop it on uh, First Nations ground. So that that's a threat to the pipeline as well. Oh, sure it is. And of course, there's still the, there's been an extension now. The approval process has been extended another three weeks yeah. in order for the consultation process ordered mm-hmm. by the courts with First Nations to run its course, to be completed. And of course, there yeah. are members of First Nations communities who say, listen, you can extend the deadline until the cows come home. We're still going to say no. Some of them say that. A lot of First Nations are opposed to it, but a, a significant number of First Nations actually support the pipeline, too. There's a lot of them along the route, the pipeline route, that have actually signed uh, benefit-sharing agreements right. on this pipeline. So, you know, the the idea that First Nations are are all opposed to this thing is not correct. There's a lot of First Nations that actually support the pipeline, too. And that that was exploited from the beginning by the organized activists who were uh, very much uh, determined to have us believe that the First Nations were universally opposed. And they tried that right from the beginning. And, of course, were eventually corrected by, appropriately, the First Nations themselves, who who said, no, it's not unanimous by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, no, for sure. I mean, there's kind of a natural alliance among environmentalists and First Nations who are opposed to the pipeline, and they they will stand shoulder to shoulder to fight the thing. But there are lots of First Nations in B.C. that uh, are in favor of of the, of the pipeline too, and and they'll tell you. I mean, talk to some of the the Whispering Pines band there in Kamloops. Who I talk to the chief there frequently, and he's very eloquent in describing how this pipeline is is good for that community. He's, it provides jobs for our people. We can we can get our uh, kids into school. We can get uh, we can provide. Uh, services and housing for elders. There are a lot of benefits to it. Now, of course, they're an an interior uh, band, and they don't have to worry about an oil spill on the coast. Sure. Most uh, most of the opposition, a lot of the opposition among First Nations are from coastal First Nations, but there's some First Nations on the coast that support it too. So there's definitely, just like among the general public of in course. British Columbia, there are divisions of opinion within First Nations about this project. Too. Right. And and just before we get to the break, uh, Jason yeah. Kenney invoked Finally, nice to hear a national political figure use the name Vivian Krauss 
in oh, his yeah. in his remarks during his acceptance speech following the election on Tuesday night. Uh, Vivian Krause has been doing a lot of incredible homework for a very long time and been spurned by many of us in the media for her efforts. And finally, nonetheless, sticking to her agenda and her 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 objectives has has yep. produced some really startling realities in terms of what's behind all of this opposition. Yeah, she does the old follow the money. Exactly. One of the best things to do. Remember that in, in uh, Watergate? Follow the money. That's right. And what she does is she looks well at these environmental groups operating in Canada and fighting pipelines and, and other sort of fossil fuel development and saying, well, where do they get their money from? And she found that a lot of the money flows from uh, foundations in the United States and outside of Canada. So you know, she's arguing, look, let's let's be clear about where this money is coming from. Is it coming from outside of the country and influencing our development of our natural resources? Now, people who are, are opposed to the pipeline will turn right around and say, hey, well, okay, fine, but a lot of the big oil companies that are developing this stuff and digging it out of the ground and putting it in the pipeline and building pipelines, they're foreign companies too. So, you know, so there's foreign involvement on both sides. There's foreign involvement in, build, in developing the oil sands, and there's foreign involvement in fighting it. And just before we continue our discussion of stuff happening in Canada, Micah, I need to update, just update this story that, we're, that it's trickling in from Colombo, the capital city of Sri Lanka, and it's none of the news is good. Six blasts uh, this morning, Easter Sunday morning, now several hours ago over there, uh, toppled ceilings, blew out windows at a famous Catholic church in Colombo and three luxury hotels, 207 people killed, 450 people injured, the government unsure of uh, the origins. Of, obviously, it, it's it's an organized terror attack. They say they've arrested seven people. Uh, we know that uh, the foreign ministry is talking about foreign nationals involved, uh, people from Portugal, Turkey, British nationals, some Americans. Uh, no indication as to Canadian uh, casualties yet. Um, a Dutch national and a Chinese person have rep- reported among the victims. Uh, g- uh, the Canadian government so far simply issuing a, a, an advisory to all Canadian either in Sri Lanka now or intending to travel there to be extremely cautious. And if you are there and you have friends there, the government of Canada is saying, just be very careful. Just stay away from uh, parts of the city that you know are, are, are dangerous. So, Mike, uh, terrible news on Easter Sunday. And, of course, a very strategic mission by those who set out this, this, this terrible deed. That is awful news. There, Sterling. I mean, the death toll there is unbelievable. With over 200 people dead. That's, yeah. that's that's incredible. In a country that had had some troubles in the past with the civil war, but that had been over for quite a long time, and the country had been relatively peaceful here recently. And I was just just reading this morning how even the actually the Lonely Planet travel guide named Sri Lanka as the best place in the world to visit this year. So wow. that's that's awful. It terrible is. news. Terrible it, news. And and you know we'll we'll uh, complete uh, where obviously our newsroom is on the story. Aaron's all over it today, and and we'll uh, bring you as much information as we can. Uh, and uh, we'll, we're we're on the story. And Mike, uh, it, as we continue our conversation here, we're talking about this blue wave that you refer to. Uh, now that Jason Kenney has been installed or will officially be installed in Alberta on April thirtieth, so we've got Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario all 
conservative jurisdictions, none of them in the least bit impressed by Justin Trudeau's carbon tax, among many other policies. Uh, And the government of Quebec, well, that's a different category. They're a conservative government, as you pointed out, but Quebec is Trudeau's home turf. And we've seen in the Lavalin business how he's willing to twist himself into a pretzel to do anything for Quebec. But what about this power block that goes from Jason Kenney all the way to Doug Ford? How's that going to influence this October? election. Ford says he's going right after Trudeau. Well, I think the carbon tax, the federal carbon tax is going to be a, a absolutely crucial issue in the federal election this fall. Now, here in British Columbia, we have our own provincial carbon tax, yeah. so this new federal tax doesn't apply. But in a lot of these other provinces where uh, this federal tax is set to come in, including next door in Alberta, where Jason Kenney has said he's going to scrap the, the carbon tax provincially that was brought in by Rachel Notley and then go to court Mm -hmm. with a lot of these other sort of right-leaning small-c conservative premiers to fight this federal carbon tax. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a a crucial issue. And we'll see if this kind of right-wing wave continues in the the federal election. And Andrew Scheer, the leader of the federal conservative party, certainly hopes it does. Now, if you take a look at some of the current opinion polls across Canada, uh, Andrew Scheer and the conservatives got a lead here. Now, I'm just taking a look right now at the uh, Eric Renier poll tracker online. Shows the federal conservatives right now 35.2%. Justin Trudeau and the Liberals 32.7%. So Mm. they've been kind of two, three-point gap right now. It's been a little higher for the conservatives. A a lot of this really started with the SNC-Lavalin scandal when the conservatives got some wind in their sails as a result of that. And he loves to, he sure would love to see that continue through the fall. So the Conservatives looking pretty good, but I would I would never count out Trudeau. Like I just think it, he's a fierce, a good campaigner. Um, he's a guy who's still kind of got the star quality. I mean, you know, the, the bloom has come off the rose quite a bit uh, for sure. But mm-hmm. he's look, you know, you take a look at some of his recent swings through British Columbia. He still gets the adoring crowds out there. Yep. All all getting excited and looking for selfies. He's still kind of got a bit of that royal jelly. And if he gets on a roll, I, I give him a, a very good opportunity to still get elected because Andrew Scheer is not the most dynamic politician in the country. Jugmeet Singh from the NDP is certainly not lighting the world on fire. So I think there's still a chance Trudeau hangs on here. But one intriguing possibility as well, though, with these polls being as close as they are, is the possibility of a minority government. Definitely. So something to watch for. Absolutely. And uh, yeah. his dad went through the same thing, got a little too arrogant for his own good, and was rewarded with a minority government. Yeah, that's right. Now, if you take a look at the way this is breaking down, a lot of people have looked at Jagmeet Singh and the NDP and said, oh, this guy is a bit of a dud as a, as a federal NDP leader. Right. They're not doing well in the polls. Well, guess what? If this if this ends up as a minority government, you better keep a close eye on him because he could conceivably, possibly, end up holding the balance of power here in a minority government if things break that way, which is very possible that it could. Still to come between now and the election is the whole matter of Vice Admiral Mark Norman. You think the SNC-Lavalin business uh, uh, spread negative shade over the Trudeau brand. If this makes it uh, to the front pages as it deserves to, uh, he's going to take a second major hit in the poorest timing possible. 
Yeah, no, that's certainly a point of jeopardy there for him, for sure. The SNC thing has kind of died down a little bit here in the last few days, but that could roar back to life at any any point as well. So certainly there are some scandals, some embarrassments for Trudeau that are hounding him here. But, you know, there's an old saying in politics that you don't have to be a 10 in politics. You can be a (laughs) 4 if your opponents are all 2s. And I think like Trudeau might be thinking, well, yeah, he's got a little, he's got some trouble. They've gone down in the polls. His approval ratings have eroded a little bit. But if you're up against a guy like Andrew Scheer, that's uh, not going to really strongly connect with the po- with the public in a dynamic way, and Jagmeet Singh, who's like not a great leader, you can still pull it out, you know. So it's going to be. I'll tell you what, though, it's going to be a, an extremely dynamic and interesting and exciting election this fall. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be as nasty as Alberta's was. A lot of people are saying um, it's going to be ugly. It could be. It could be. I mean, you could see the conservatives run a very negative campaign, and you could see the liberals sort of returning fire. So it could get, it could get down and dirty. But I, I think there's going to be a lot of public engagement uh, on this election in the fall, and uh, it's going to be one to watch for sure. It could be a burn burner. Yeah, watching this yep. SNC business go down, a lot of, a lot of the line, he's just not ready kept coming back yeah. to me as as we watched all this 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 bumbling this this mismanagement this incredible inefficiency uh and, and that 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 line kept coming back and so some of these negative things actually stick don't they they do and the conservatives could be good at making them stick we'll see all right mike smith thank you for this my friend always a pleasure and happy easter to you and the family Sterling, the same to you anytime. Thanks a lot. I'm Sterling Fox for Jill Bennett, joined by Professor Jeffrey Myers from Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops. Jeff is uh, on Easter weekend uh, on Salt Spring Island, visiting family out there in the Gulf of Georgia. Professor Myers, Jeff, good morning. Oh, good morning, Sterling. I'm so happy to be on with you, and I hope that our um, cell phone connection uh, maintains despite the vagaries of cell phone transmissions here in Salt Spring Island. Yeah, a little rustic spot you found yourself in on this weekend. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, good, good on you for, for coming back home uh, down to the coast, uh, and we'll hope the, uh, the cell uh, connection, fragile as it is, is good. You have a background in both United States and Canadian law, and uh, this is why I continue to lean on you relentlessly when I have an opportunity when we talk about things going on in the United States because you of, of your understanding and the fact that you were at one point, I believe, uh, licensed to practice in New York State, correct? Yeah, I'm still licensed to practice in New York State, although I'm not currently practicing in New York State. I am teaching law at Thompson Rivers University uh, in Kamloops, right. as you say, but I did practice there for a couple of years after law school, for sure, and I, I study and I teach and have done research in constitutional law and uh, definitely happy to talk about it uh, from an American or Canadian perspective. Well, let's talk about it from a legal perspective, which I w- w- would be American, <laughs> given that it's that American law and the, and the process is going to be entirely American. But let's let's talk <laughs> about this report, because uh, the, the, the Attorney General, uh, Mr. Barr, uh, first of all, a month ago, exonerated the president in a four-page letter that said very little about the report other than his interpretation. Uh, then uh, in advance of the release of the report, he and uh, Mr. Rosenstein, the uh, deputy attorney general, and another person who was never identified, uh, gave a press conference in which he put another round of spin on the report before actually releasing it to any person other than the White House. So a couple of rounds of spin. So we, we were so we were set up to expect X. 
And the report contained uh, some X, but a lot of Y. And that's the part that they didn't really want us to pay attention to. What's the, the, the as, as it all boils down, Jeff, what's the essence of the report from where you're sitting? Yeah, well, that's a, that's exactly, and I think the way you frame it, Sterling, is is very helpful. Um, you know, so it's now it's over four hundred some odd pages, including some redactions, uh, not as many as, as some folks had thought. Right. Um, and but we've now had a couple of days uh, to pull over the report and to do some searches on it and to, to try to read it as much as possible and reflect on some of the commentary. Um, and the the what I had said at the time, I think, stands. I think it was obvious that the way in which uh, Mr. Barr had sort of set up the report, taken the time to do the redactions, which is fine, but sure. the way in which he'd released this four-page report and included very little verbatim quotes from um, Mr. Mueller himself and sort of framed those quotes around his own interpretation, which, by the way, was well-known um, well before he was even appointed uh, into his current position. Right. And in those, um, and, and I think what one of the more helpful and useful things that have been done is that since the, the actual Mueller report has been released, um, good, both journalists and uh, legal experts have looked at how he framed it and the quotes in particular that uh, Mr. Barr extracted from the report and then put them back into the context of the broader language around them. Right. Uh, and what that reveals is, in fact, uh, quite a different story uh, than the one uh, which uh, Mr. Barr reported to tell and, again, tried to use it when presenting the material to the American public. I think the strategy, uh, to my mind, is uh, is is pretty obvious. I mean, the idea is that, you know, that the average member of the public isn't going to have the time to digest the entire report. Sure. They're accustomed to trusting government officials. And so I think what Mr. Barr did was as long, he felt as long as he could use a couple quotes from the report to moor his conclusions, and he didn't go too far from the broader picture, that ultimately the attention spans would wear down over time and nobody would really sort of hold him to it, or at least nobody other than the chattering class uh, which wasn't sort of reflective of Trump's base. And, the, and he's probably right about that. Mm-hmm. It's a good political hand. Um, but it's up to, you know, experts and also journalists, uh, you know, to sort of hold the feet to the fire on this. And I think the essence of the story, if I, could, if I can say it, is this. is I think there's, there's one area in which it wasn't just spin, but it was a bit of misrepresentation. And that's what I think people have to understand. I think what people need to understand is two things and specifically, and I, and I sensed them at the time and it was confirmed after reading the Mueller report for me. And they are. Uh, the, they are. The first thing is, is this idea that Mr. Um, Mueller couldn't make a determination um, and therefore decided that it was up to uh, the attorney general to make that decision. I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's clear that Mr. Mueller's opinion was he couldn't indict a sitting president. That was the opinion of the Office of Legal Counsel. Yes. Everybody knew that from the beginning. Yep. And that ultimately what he was saying is if I could exonerate completely on the question of obstruction of justice, I would have. Um, but I can't recommend a charge because the Office of Legal Counsel says you can't indict a sitting president anyway. But he does, however, note it very explicitly that it's up to Congress to make this determination. And also that, by the way, the immunity that the president enjoys wouldn't necessarily apply after he left office. Right. right? So this really, and I think that's quite proper. I mean, he's, he's a little more conservative than I am. And I've said before, that I don't agree with the decision of the Office of Legal Counsel, and not all lawyers, including U.S. constitutional lawyers, agree that a sitting president shouldn't be possible to indict if they've broken laws, particularly to get elected. But that is the opinion. Right. But the, and, and, there's some, and, and, and the rationale to that opinion, of course, isn't that the president is above the law. The rationale is that the president is subject to oversight by Congress. So it's up to... Um, um, 
Congress to decide when to impeach and what defines a high crime and misdemeanor. And one of the things that um, I think is a bit conf- in Mueller's report that might be confusing um, for the layperson is that he uses a criminal standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt and says we don't have I can't I, I don't have a case for I, I don't think we have the evidence of proof beyond a reasonable doubt upon which a jury could convict. Right. And especially some of these underlying crimes. Remember, there's no such thing as collusion, but there is such a thing as conspiracy. Sure. Conspiracy and some of the campaign finance reform, uh, some of the campaign finance. Um, so I should say political laws and political finance laws are being um, investigated here are ones that require a very high degree of intent, right? Usually we say um, um, ignorance of the law is no excuse. That's what I teach my students in criminal law. Of course, yeah. That's true. But in some very, very complex areas of the law with very serious crimes, like um, conspiracy, for example, you require people to actually set their mind uh, to something in a very conscious way and just a vague stumbling around or even something that might look a bit like... Um, uh, willful blindness, at least not in the context of some of these conspiracy charges under U.S. federal law, is sufficient to convict. That doesn't, however, mean they don't rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors as political crimes, which can be the basis for and, in fact, have been on less evidence for um, impeachment based on obstruction in, in Congress. Right. right. So, now, Jeff, I'm, 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 yeah. I'm getting I'm running out of time here and I want I wanted to ask you about Mueller because you've, you've opened the door beautifully for me here. Mr. Mueller did not. Uh, indicate or uh, include his own opinions and conclusions in the report, left the door open for Congress, as you just said. Now, Congress has responded by saying, well, we're going to get Mr. Mueller up here and we're going to have him testify and we're going to grill him on his report and its contents. Do you think on that occasion, Mr. Mueller will offer an opinion? I think that Mr. Mueller, you know, I'm not, it'd be interesting to see that. I think they do have the subpoena power to call him, and I do think that he'll um, testify. And I think one of the, another area of disagreement between him and Mr. Barr, which I think is also he's in absolutely in the right as a legal matter, is that you know obstruction of justice doesn't require a finding of guilt in the underlying uh, crime, right? So the fact that there's not enough evidence to show something that rises to the level of criminal conspiracy again, collusion is not a legal term. Uh, with Russia doesn't mean that Mr. Trump and the people around him didn't lie uh, to cover up wrongdoing, whether they were covering up for political purposes or to avoid embarrassment or for optics or because they were actually involved in a criminal conspiracy. It's not relevant. The cover up itself is a crime. Yes. Right? So I think Mr. Mr. Barr has tried to fudge that and given an opinion that's erroneous on that. And I think it's possible uh, that Mr. Mueller will try to clarify that, at least in his opinion. But again, it's not about his opinion. You're right to say that. What he's saying is, ultimately, I'm laying out the evidence. By the way, I've given anything that's outside of my remit to other law enforcement agencies, including 14 investigations we didn't even know about. Exactly. Um, and this is going to be there and preserve the record for future prosecutors who, if Mr. Um, Trump... Uh, leaves office could potentially decide to 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 prosecute. So I think, you know, that that it might give us some clarification of this. Clearly it's not over. Um, but Congress is going to have to make a principal decision if they're going to avoid impeachment and just try to investigate and let this thing go to an election, which might be good political strategy and might be a good realist strategy, but it's, it doesn't seem very principled, I don't think, under the circumstances. So we'll have to watch closely. Okay, and final question to you. We've only got a few seconds left. The whole possibility of impeachment. You just said it may be more strategic for the Democrats to just let the people toss him out if they want to in a year and a half. On the other hand, there are many in the Democratic Party said, no, let's nail this guy. There's enough now on the record. We can get him. Which of the two options do you think they'll take? 
Well, I think they'll take the former rather than the latter because they're convinced and, you know, not without reason that if this thing went to a, a, that Mr. Trump wouldn't resign like Nixon did just by virtue of the fact that he got impeached in the House, which is controlled by Democrats, but that he'd get acquitted in the Senate and then he'd be able to kind of declare a victory and so that he might be strengthened by this. So there's this fear that it would redound to his benefit. And I think that's that is a real possibility. However, I think if you have this kind of evidence of wrongdoing, and even especially if it's inconclusive in some ways, it requires a public hearing, which is what a Senate trial would be for the historical record. And just because it might not work doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do. And if you think Mr. Trump is a dangerous and out-of-control president, then it should be done, and there should be no political calculations around it. Interesting stuff. Always a pleasure, Jeff Myers. Enjoy the rest of your Easter weekend out there on Salt Spring Island, my friend. It's uh, great to have you on the program. We appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you having me on, Sterling. Take care, and thank you to your listeners. All right, now it's time to continue with Jill's BC Book Prize series, and it's a real pleasure to welcome this author, who lives off the grid, to say the very least, in a little place near Atlin. That's way up there in northern BC. Her name is Kate Harris, and the book in question is Lands of Lost Borders, Out of Bounds, on the Silk Road, nominated for the BC Book Prize. Kate Harris joins us from somewhere off the grid. Kate, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to hear your voice again. You and I talked on another network about a year ago about this book, and I, between the time that uh, we had our conversation and now, I've had a chance to actually read the darn thing from cover to cover. I only had it a few days before our first conversation. It's a marvelous book. You as a kid, oh. where, where did you live in rural Ontario? Because that's, that's where this story starts. You as a kid in rural Ontario, deciding you wanted to become an explorer, you couldn't do it anywhere on Earth, so you wanted to go to Mars. That's right. Yeah, I'm actually right at this moment near where I grew up. I grew up outside um, Guelph and Erin in uh, small town Ontario, uh, rural Ontario. Yeah. And I've just been visiting family for Easter weekend. Um, but yeah, when I looked around me here, you know, all I saw was fences and and farm fields and barns. And I really craved a, a wilder world than what I could see. And so it seemed like yeah, to be an explorer in this day and age, I would have to take some extreme measures. Well, indeed. So you did, though. Uh, why you did take a little adventure, a sort of a uh, uh, an introductory effort, as it were. You and your partner Mel, uh, childhood friend, now your partner, uh, you took a bicycle ride down a short section of the Silk Road. Why on earth did you choose the Silk Road, Kate? Yeah, well, first I should clarify, Mel is not my partner. She's my still my best friend. Okay. But, uh, yeah, not my partner. Okay. Um, but, yeah, we. I was fascinated with Marco Polo as a, as a child. Okay. Um, and so the Silk Road was always sort of implanted in my mind as this, this sort of far-flung, wondrous place, wondrous swath of the world, um, you know, with amazing landscapes, but also cultures. Um, and it was sort of that combination of, of, you know, wild mountains and deserts, but also these, these really um, ancient and ongoing cultural points of interest along the way that uh, compelled me to the place. And so I proposed to Mel that we, you know, we were we had just graduated university and I proposed we uh, kind of celebrate with a little bike ride on uh, China's section of the Silk Road. And she was immediately game. Wow. Okay. So how old were you? You'd be, you just graduated out of university, so you'd be, what, early 20s, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think we were like 
22 or 23. So I guess the question probably crossed a few family members' minds of you and Mel. What on earth are two young women on bicycles going to do in the middle of nowhere if something goes wrong? Yeah, they were they were worried for sure. But, it, you know, the best news is no news in circumstances like that. Um, we did have a – we brought a satellite phone with us just in case. Sure. Um, and – but we didn't we didn't even turn it on. I think in the two months, except to call Mel's mom for her birthday in the middle of, of the desert. Um, yeah, it was an, it, it, in a way those experiences are hard to come by today. It's 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 difficult to like truly disconnect and truly be where you are. And so I, I see that time in retrospect as a real gift. Indeed, the book's been out for a while. How's it been? How's the reaction been? I thoroughly enjoyed it because it's part travelogue, part absolute adventure story, and there's more than a little autobiography going on as well. A, a real yeah. round uh, story effort all, all, all the way. How? Uh, what sort of reaction have you received? Oh, it's it's just been thrilling. I mean, you, I worked away on this book for years, never knowing if it would get published, first of all, and, and never mind find readers, find mm-hmm. an audience. And for people to connect with it and then tell me how it how it moved them um is is a thrilling thing yeah i mean writing is such a solitary uh inverted introverted activity and um it's it's been quite a joy to finally share the the fruits of that solitude with a lot of people and and very favorable feedback anybody say you know um kate we'd like to make a movie out of this (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm still waiting for, for those calls. <laughs> well, has it crossed your mind that, that it may occur to someone? Um, I mean, that would be that would be delightful. It would be really fun to... I We filmed a bunch of the trip ourselves, so we have all this footage that we've never really done much with other than sort of short little 10-minute clips that we've put online. On the website, yeah. Um, yeah, and so it'd be, yeah, whether it were a documentary film or, or a, a Hollywood <laughs> take on our adventures um that would be really fun to see it in a different medium and if you'd like to have a look at uh, the videos that kate was talking about her website is kate harris h-a-r-r-i-s kate harris one word dot c-a and it tells you a lot about the book and there's some of those videos as well uh, and some wonderful desert footage so you in fact did two trips on the silk road you did a sort of a test run and then you went back and did the real deal didn't you yeah so we we love that we spent four months biking just in Western China, so in um, Xinjiang and Tibet, and um, covered like 4,000 kilometers in those four months and loved it so much. It was just such a grand adventure and and, um, liberating period in our lives that we we swore we'd finish the whole Silk Road someday, which of course stretches all the way from Europe to Asia. Mm -hmm. We had just done this little bridge section in Asia and we wanted to connect the dots. Um, And it was five years before we could kind of you know, we went to grad school um, and got busy, basically. Uh, so it was five years before we could kind of clear the decks and, and set off again to finish that ride. But, you know, you, you stated at the outset of this conversation, it's so good to talk to you again, uh, that you have yeah. that Marco Polo was kind of a hero when you were growing up. And then all of a sudden, there you were many, many years later uh, on the real deal portion of the adventure doing Marco Polo traveling on the Silk Road at probably close to the same speed he did because there were uh, bicycles were even super fast devices in his day. It was all by animals, car- caravans. But your bicycles, you at least had a sense of of what that felt like, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing pace at which to travel because you 
you see so much more. The, the slower you go, the more you can kind of take in of the world around you. And I love that about being on a bicycle. And I love the fact that um, people, uh, they maybe respect you more when you roll in on a bicycle as opposed to, you know, a big tour bus or something. Mm-hmm. And so it really, it makes for um, very intense, intimate uh, connections with the people in the places you travel through. Um, and it's also incredibly cheap. It's, um, you know, bicycle is not expensive. You don't need a fancy one to do this kind of trip. And uh, it really opens up a huge swath of the world to you that otherwise you'd need a lot of money to to see. And you basically just need time and a bicycle. Right. Now, I don't have a lot of time left, unfortunately, but I wanted to ask you about Chinese government. Uh, this adventure involved a series of, well, shall we say, encounters with officials of the Chinese government, not necessarily the most yeah. welcoming human beings on the planet. And yet here you are. Yeah. Well, you know, we did this trip in, it was 2011 and it was a different world then. Um, I would certainly be very wary of of uh, defying checkpoints in China in this day and age. Mm-hmm. I mean, with um, tensions between our governments. Um, I mean, the Chinese people generally are, are wonderful and welcoming and generous. Um, and they're, you know, they're living under this restrictive government themselves. Sure. So yeah. Uh, but yeah, I certainly would not do what we did then today. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you did it when you did, and and you produced a superb work, and if if, uh, you haven't had a chance to check this out, friends, first go to Kate's website. That's the easiest and fastest way to get to the book. And have you got uh, e-versions and all of that, uh, all those other options available as well? I have the hard copy in my hand here this morning, but there are other options available? They're all, yeah, all the options. Cool. (laughs) Thanks, Kate. Oh, my pleasure, Sterling. Have a great weekend. You too, and happy Easter, huh? 